you'll take your copy of God's Word and open with me there to 1 John chapter 4 and read along. There's a great mystery that's at work, it would seem. I've had several conversations about this in preparing a message from God's Word and to preach to God's people. It's something I don't understand. I had determined in my heart to begin a series from one of the minor prophets, and it just couldn't, it wouldn't happen. The Lord, I trust, has, has led me here. This is the word He would have for us today. So take up your word, 1 John chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but he, that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, we 
are awe-stricken at the weight and the glory and the import of the call to love in this brief portion of your holy word. We are humbled that you, the creator of the universe, the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs, has such great love for your people that even in the unworthiness and filth of our sins, of our wayward hearts and minds, that you sent your Son into this fallen world to live a life unspoiled by sin and to bear in His body the punishment that justice would demand fall upon us. We give you thanks for setting the truth of your word before us that we may test ourselves to see if we are of the faith and for showing us who you are and what you require of us. O Lord, I pray that you would attend the preaching of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit and apply it to each one of us with freshness and with conviction. And O Lord, make that application foremost to the preacher. For I know but in part how poorly I love you and your people. Not one of us gathered here or in the hearing of my voice loves as we ought. Show us this truth and draw us further into the warmth of your love. Bring repentance. Bring repentance where we have failed to love and even hated our brother or sister. Trouble our hearts and minds until we have earnestly pursued and embraced the love you call us to. Don't let us leave this place unchanged and unaffected by your word. Cast out all hypocrisy in our understanding and application of love, such that there is no place left for false love and no tolerance for anything that we may call love except that which you have established in your word. Make this our true desire. For this we ask and pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the object of our faith and our only hope. Amen. You may be seated. As we read from John's first epistle, it may be helpful to note John is writing to the church with the central purpose of shoring up their health, their vitality and well-being. And part of that shoring up is to bring conviction and hope to those with a false or superficial profession of faith, but also to bring assurance to those with genuine faith. He is simultaneously concerned with the purity of the church, which is threatened by false believers, and with the discernment of the true believer. This is a letter we need to read with honesty and read regularly. And we need to do so because we fall short of the high calling this high calling in this Christian life. We continue to sin, and there is hypocrisy in our walk as Christians. And John shines the light of truth on areas where we fall short. In this letter, he explicitly articulates three reasons for writing, and each of these three are clearly directed toward the good of those who believe. We find these reasons, perhaps we could call him his that statements, or his so that statements, in chapter 1 and chapter 5. First, in chapter 1, verse 3, John is writing this testimony that we may have fellowship with the apostles 
a fellowship that is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John's first great purpose and aim in this letter is to lead God's people into a real and genuine and vital relationship with our triune God. As is true with almost every gathering of the church, there are those whose outward appearance is appropriate and whose testimony is rightly articulated. But upon closer examination and when subjected to the trials of life, these turn out to be mere externals. Mere words and empty professions and not confirming evidences of true faith. And therefore, there is no actual relationship with the living God. And John wants none of that. None of that for the church. He wants us all to know the real, intimate, daily walking and fellowship. Indeed, he exhorts us to examine our walk. God is light, he writes, and in him there is no darkness at all. Therefore, if we say we have fellowship and yet walk in darkness, then we are liars, not practicing the truth. But, but if we are walking in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and are partakers of the cleansing blood of Christ. Furthermore, if we say we have no sin... We are deceived, and the truth is not in us. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make Christ a liar, and His Word is not in us. We're not saved. But, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Salvation. John is not writing this to discourage true believers, but rather encourage them. He is pointing us to hope, true hope. But in doing so, he is also providing the self-check that is needed, a test, if you will. And we ought not to breeze too quickly through these tests without meditating upon them and applying them to ourselves. Perhaps we should ask ourselves, No, we should ask ourselves questions like this. Am I walking in darkness? Is my life characterized by ongoing, unrepented sin? Attraction to dark things, to death? Any desire for that which is forbidden by God? Have I given myself over to unholy habits? Do I acknowledge how deceptive my heart is? Or do I just trust my feelings? Do I justify my sin, straining at dictionary definitions rather than admitting the shamefulness of my actions by calling them by what God calls them? Am I hiding something shameful from my spouse? Or from my parent? If so, then I am a liar not practicing the truth. Am I content being in this state as a liar? If so, then the word of Christ is not in me and I have, am not in a state of grace. This is fearful. I may be unsaved. But... 
And here is the hope and comfort for the true believer. If I confess my sins truthfully and fully confess my sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive me. To forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel life. This is the way the true believer lives and walks in sweet fellowship with his God. Secondly, John is writing this epistle that our joy may be full. We see this in chapter 1, verse 4. John's second aim is not only for us to have true fellowship with God, but consequently that our joy may be full. That's right. Genuine faith produces fullness of joy. And to turn this around, if there is no joy, then there may not be true faith. Or maybe there's something anemic or wrong with the faith that you do have. As Billy Sunday, the White Sox center fielder turned evangelist, once said, the trouble with many men is that they have got just enough religion to make them miserable. If there is not joy in religion, you have got a leak in your religion. There's a truth in there. The fruit of the Spirit is love, which is followed immediately in that list by joy. Paul wrote, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The church is not to be a joyless gathering of worried people with long faces staggering from one personal crisis to the next. This is not to be characteristic of your family or your personal life. Not that we don't face crises in this life. The troubles, the sorrows, the bereavements, and even the consequences of our sins are all difficult realities. We certainly do struggle in these. And it may be helpful to remember that Christians throughout all ages have known even far greater struggles than we, we can even hardly imagine. Struggles that would undo worldly men. But the joy of the Lord was their strength and their stay. Paul found great boldness and confidence to preach the gospel in his chains. And so he wrote to the Philippians, In this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. I would like to declare to you this morning on the authority of Scripture that it is not the will of God for His people that they be joyless or to have only a little joy. It is not the will of God that His people live in constant turmoil, constant defeat, and constant depression of spirit. No, John is writing that the church's joy may be full. Full to the brim. Possessing a joy that spills out into the world and to those around them. A joy that serves as a soothing balm in the deepest, darkest despairs of life. So that we can say, because the Lord has taught me to say and made me to know, it is well with my soul. For most of us, it doesn't take too much introspection to see that we all struggle with joy from time to time. Do you struggle with joy? I know I do. Be honest with yourself. What's going on with your joy 
David prayed, restore the joy of thy salvation. So we know that joy can depart for a season. Too often our joy is governed by the circumstances of life and time. Our own sins, our failures, the the failures of others even. By grievances, by disappointments and disillusionments. Our bodily aches and pains or a struggle with sickness. These things tend to rob our joy. One of the most joyful people I know suffers quietly with great pain. It is not easy. It is a struggle. But there is daily joy and daily selfless service and daily rejoicing in God's goodness and in His salvation. There is a whole unending list of things that would rob us of joy if we would let them. What's on your list? What's robbing you of joy? Go ahead and think of the top one or two things right now. Now ask yourself, why have I allowed these things to govern and diminish my joy? Remember David prayed to the Lord, restore the joy of thy salvation. He confessed his sins and cried out to the Lord, what was the source of his joy? Thy salvation. The salvation of the Lord. Our joy is preeminently in Christ and his salvation. We should never be satisfied with the absence of joy in the Lord. Too often we seek joy in things, in material possessions or experiences or sensual pleasures. But true joy comes only from the Lord and He shares this joy with those who walk in fellowship with Him. Thomas Chalmers wrote, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, let us know true joy by setting our affection on the joy of His salvation, His fellowship, His perfect love. If you are here this morning and there is no joy, there's no true joy, there is very little joy, then when you go home, or even now if the Spirit leads, ask the Lord to search your heart and to show you what is there. And confess your sins, all of them, specifically. Cry out to Him. Ask Him to restore the joy of His salvation. And don't be satisfied until you know that He has answered. Thirdly, in chapter 5, John is writing so that we may know that we have eternal life and that we may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In a previous message on assurance of salvation, we explored this aim in greater detail. This is the positive side of John's writing, to give assurance to the doubting believer. A tool that John helpfully provides throughout this letter, this epistle, is one that tests our profession of faith. Some of the phrases that signal these tests are, if we say, or he who says, or whoever does this or that, Throughout this short letter, John is informing us that if we say that we have faith, then there is something that necessarily accompanies that which we profess. 
We can therefore test the veracity of our profession. He is saying that the life we live either proves or denies the profession that we make with our mouth. Therefore, we see that there is also a negative side to these tests. As we examine our lives through these tests, the very real possibility exists that we find that our profession is just an empty shell, not possessing any of the fruit or evidence of faith that should be found there. This is a good exercise for all of us to read this epistle, reflecting upon the test and honestly answering them so that we may grow in our application and in our Christian character so that we may enjoy sweeter fellowship with the Lord and His people so that our joy may be full. And that brings us now to the text I would like for us to consider more closely this morning. I've entitled the message, Love, the Mark of True Faith. This love is that agape love. It's not talking about brotherly love, but that is, that is commanded. Nor is it talking about that passionate love that you would have for your spouse, though that is a blessed thing. This is that covenant love, a God-centered, rightly ordered, selfless, sacrificial love, which necessarily characterizes the life of a true believer who has been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So let's look at these passages, this text, under four headings. First, love is the test that we know God. Second, love is the test that we abide in God and He in us. Third, love is incompatible with fear. And fourthly, love is proved in obedience. Let's take them in order. Love is the test that we know God. Reading at verse 7 from chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John states that love is a fundamental mark of the one who has authentic faith. If the one who loves has been born of God and knows God, then the one who does not love has neither been born of God Nor does he know God, because God is love. God is love. That is, love is essential to God's nature. When we read God is love, we must never think that his love is more important than his other attributes. The doctrine of simplicity tells us God's love never operates apart from his holiness, his mercy, justice, omnipotence, omniscience, or any other attribute. This tells us it is loving to seek justice and demand holiness, though we never do so at the expense of mercy. If we have become partakers of His nature and reflect God's holy and loving character with biblically informed knowledge, 
then we have no choice but to love other people, especially fellow believers. Our transformed hearts will inevitably respond to God's call that we love others as He loves us. We will endeavor to love if we have been born of God. And we will repent when we find ourselves not loving as He has commanded. As Peter opens his second epistle to the true believers in Jesus Christ, he writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been give, given exceeding and great precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Do you know the grace and peace of God? Do you know His glory and virtue? Do you know the scope and breadth of His exceedingly great and precious promises? Do you know that God's love was so great that He sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him and that He might provide the propitiation required for our sins? Then if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Could it be any clearer? Do you say that you know God savingly? Then you must indeed love God. Are you unsure if you love God? Well then, do you love your brothers and sisters sitting next to you? Sitting in front of or behind you? even everyone in this room? If so, then thanks be to God. But if not, then perhaps you don't truly know God. Secondly, love is the test that we abide in God and He in us. Beginning at verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. By this that we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. John here tells us it is by the Holy Spirit that we know we dwell in Christ and that He dwells in us. But it is not simply His internal witness that tells us we are the children of God. We're not meant to read this passage in isolation from the rest of the letter. John discusses the role of the Spirit along with the test of faith. The internal witness of the Spirit will always be confirmed, always be confirmed, by the outward manifestations of confession, of love, and of holiness. Here in verses 14 and 15, 
John assumes the primacy of the Holy Spirit, but also discusses the outward manifestation of a true confession. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that is, whoever acknowledges His full deity and full humanity according to the apostolic teaching, dwells in God and God in Him. In other words, our avowed belief in God's Son shows that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. But once again, John directs us to the outward evidence of love. He reminds us we have come to know and believe the love of God has for us. And the context shows us shows us we have come to know this love because of God's willingness to send His Son as a servant for the sake of our salvation. Moreover, He again declares that God is love and that if we abide in love, God abides in us. Is John referring to abiding in the love God has for us? Or is he referring to abiding in our love for God? Or is he referring to abiding in our love for others? We can't clearly separate these three, so I suggest John probably has all of them in mind. Therefore, the test of our abiding in God, and He in us, is our abiding in love. Third point is love is incompatible with fear. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Verse 17 begins, love has been perfected among us in this, why has this love been perfected among us? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. How can this be? Because as He is, so are we in this world. Verse 18 then tells us we can be confident because perfect love casts out the fear of eternal punishment. Apart from Christ, we have every reason to fear the judgment seat of God. But when we are in Him, we have nothing to fear. For He has borne our punishment, and in turn we are seen by God as clothed in His righteousness. There are those who fear, whose fear of eternal punishment is real, and it is warranted. Yes, we are to have a godly fear, a fear that utterly undoes us in His holy presence for every Christian knows that he is unworthy in and of himself. Those who are in Christ know and are growing in the knowledge and confidence that God's perfect wrath has been satisfied by Christ's atoning work on the cross. But for the unbeliever, there is no such confidence or boldness. If your primary response to Jesus or your most common thoughts of Jesus and His righteousness are to dread Him in fear or to despise His example or to avoid coming to terms with His comprehensive Lordship over every single aspect and moment of your life, then it doesn't matter. It does not matter 
what profession of faith you have made, you do not have the mark of Christian, of a Christian in your soul, for you do not love him. You have not been made perfect in love. Belief that exists in the abstract apart from love is worthless. It is a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Faith worketh, worketh by love. You can never separate true faith and love. Faith produces love. If you possess true faith, you love. The love that cast out this dreadful fear is perfect love. John is not teaching consummate perfection. We will not abide in love perfectly until our glorifications. Nonetheless, the end of all ages has already come upon us. Therefore, we already have a taste of this love and are empowered to strive toward it by the work of the Spirit. As we submit to Him, we are gradually perfected in love, and grow more confident that in Christ we need not fear judgment. As Calvin observed, though fear is not wholly shaken off, yet when we flee to God as a quiet harbor, safe and free from all danger of shipwreck and of tempest, fear is really expelled, for it gives way to faith. Fourth point is, love is Proved in obedience. Beginning at verse 20 and then rolling over into chapter 5. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ born of God is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How do we respond to the direct and clear commands of Scripture? I wonder how we can so easily see and hear something as clear as verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4 and yet so quickly dismiss or fail to see their application in our lives. If you are a member of this church, then you have, by virtue of your testimony, declared that you love God. And so John clearly teaches us, and we're to hear it, that we have a commandment from the Lord that if that is our testimony, that we love God, then we must also love our brother. The apostle of love, John, being mature in Christ, filled with wisdom and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares that if you say you love God and yet hate your brother, then you are a liar. This is not harsh language. This is not unkind speech. It is simply the plain truth. Remember how the Pharisee tested Jesus asking him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And Jesus said to him, You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The instruction is laid out before us. The commandment is clear. The question is, will we hear and heed his word? To drive this truth home, John continues this point, this test of love in chapter 5. If you are a true believer that Jesus is the Son of God and say that you love God, then you also provide evidence of this by loving Jesus and all his people. And how do you know that you love God and all his people? By keeping his commandments. It is not possible to love God without truly keeping his commandments. Our love for God is not simply a feeling. It must necessarily express itself in obedience to His requirements. Do we do so perfectly? No. But that must be our chief desire and we must repent when we fail to do so. Just as belief in God is not true and effectual unless it manifests itself in obedience, and you can think now of James chapter 2, neither is love for God true and effectual until it manifests itself in obedience. Having shown us that our love for God means we must keep His commandments, John also tells us that God's commandments are not burdensome, and this is good news indeed. While the law does serve to show us the depth of our sin, we must note it is also the delight, the delight of the redeemed heart to keep it. Even so, the remaining presence of sin in us makes it hard to see the law as a delight at times. And John reminds us of the conquering goodness of God's law found throughout the Scriptures. It is no surprise that the theme of conquering or overcoming the world is important in John's first epistle. We read next that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and that the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes, truly believes, Jesus is the Son of God. This is very good news for we stand in the victory of Christ. Christ who was obedient to death, even the painful and shameful death of the cross. Christ who is the object of our faith. Christ who is our hope. Christ whom we love. If you were following along closely, you may have noted that I skipped over chapter 4, verse 19. And this will bring us to our conclusion. How is it that anyone could possibly pass the test of love? Isn't this beyond our human capacity? Yes. Yes, but we love Him because He first loved us. We can pass this test because of a supernatural love. A love that originates in God and is a gracious gift of God to His children. All His children. There are no exceptions. It is the effectual love of God that first changes our hearts in order to make us capable of love. And it is His example of love that reminds us again and again of our need to love others. Love. Love is the mark 
of true faith. Every redeemed soul loves the Lord Jesus and loves his people. Do we do so perfectly? No. And yet he calls us to this love. And we love him. We love him, not just his blessings, not just his benefits, not just what he can do for us. We love him. We love all that we know about him and desire to know more that we may love him more and more perfectly. We love his person, his perfections, his deity. We're not to create a God in our own image according to our own liking. We're not to conceive of God as we think He ought to be. We're to bring our minds and our affections into captivity to the self-revelation of God and love Him as He is for what He is. We are to love Him in the trinity of His sacred persons. We love Him for all He is. We love Him. We love Him because He first loved us with a love that penetrates our souls and overflows to every fiber in our being. He loves His people with a pure, sacrificial, selfless, giving love. Though the world around us may mock and scorn and even persecute this love, this utter commitment to His Lordship we can never finally turn away from nor deny Him. We have been captivated by and changed by His love. He has poured out His love in such power and fullness that we are made new creatures, filled to overflowing with a love that refuses to be contained. This overflowing is why we love His people. This is the love that covers a multitude of sins. This is the love that motivates evangelism and compassion and generosity. This is the love that is patient and kind and has no place for envy. My dear brothers and sisters, this is the commandment of the Lord that you love one another. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we give you our humble thanksgiving for the goodness and clarity an exhortation of your holy word. Whenever we come before your word, we confess that we see and feel our weakness. We see how deficient is our love for God and for our brother. We see the feebleness of our faith. We confess that we have loved too much the world and the things of the world. O oh Lord, forgive us and lead us to repentance. Grant us a fullness of the joy of Thy salvation. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep our hearts, keep in our hearts, keep our hearts directed to the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than to contend earnestly within our own hearts for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Make the testimony of our lives ever more consistent with the profession of our tongues. Increase our love. Our love for our God 
our love for your people, our love for our neighbor. Help us, we pray. Save us to the uttermost. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.